0: Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Hammer Simwinga, founder and executive chairman of the Foundation for Wildlife and Habitat Conservation, hosted by Michael Lerner.
1: Hammer Simwinga, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you for welcoming me, and it's really my pleasure to be here. Hammer You are the winner of the Goldman Environmental Prize and a Time magazine, Hero of the Environment. Um, You uh, were named uh, by uh, uh, Governor Jerry Brown as one of 22 climate trailblazers and have been here for the 2018 Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco. You are the founder and executive chairman of the Foundation for Wildlife and Habitat Conservation, headquartered in northern Zambia. And uh, so we're here to hear about your work. So um, let me just start with this uh, simple question. Um, What is the core sense of mission that has driven you to do this work? On several fronts, I think um,
2: it started way back when I was uh, 22 years old. I'd just uh, joined the government as an agriculture extension officer. But uh, I didn't find it interesting because every time I had to wait for instructions. Whenever I wanted to do something, a big boss somewhere would tell me to hold on. So I had to kind of... uh, Ran away from that job. The government didn't know where I'd gone. So I moved from the southern part of the country, far north, and uh, found an institution. This was a, a Catholic mission and uh, asked for some work. They said they could not give me any work, but I said I would volunteer. They said, Well, if he's volunteering, then we'd we'll take you on. I said, Just give me food and accommodation, then I'll stay. But I never told them that I was running away from uh, <laughs> uh, this uh, uh, employment which was on contract for two years. I'd just done one year in government, I was supposed to do two years, then they would have left me to decide. But then I'd remained with one year. So if they had caught me, then they would have pushed me into jail for not having um, uh, completed the, the contract. So I think I stayed with the the Mission Center trying to help them develop uh, a community program uh, within the the area. And um, that gave me satisfaction because I was able to do what I loved most. Um, Two years later, I had uh, an opportunity uh, again to be invited to another wonderful project, which was... uh, working in the North Hwangwa National Park. These were two uh, wildlife biologists, Mark and Delia Owen, who also, by that time, they were f- trying to see how best they could do restore this national park, which was highly ravaged by uh, commercial uh, ivory poachers. This was an international cartel Because by that time, by 1986, this national park, which had a population of uh, over 100,000 elephants, had only less than 300 documented live elephants. Mm -hmm. So, which meant that uh, it was on the verge of being uh, wiped out completely. So, with that information, it uh, got into my heart and I thought it was really necessary for me to go and do something and help the team. So I joined these two wildlife biologists. My assignment was to help the community surrounding this national park with alternative livelihood. So I was involved in developing a community uh, program to help them improve their uh, uh, food security incomes and also to just make them understand that the park belonged to them, it was not for some external person or a white man or someone coming from elsewhere to come and help protect this resource. However, I knew that uh, once we protected our national park, then uh, the connectivity, our cultural heritage would be restored and enhanced and I think uh, even things which we had lost over time, because uh, to give you a bit of a background, the current National Park in the North Rwanga, that was our home. That's where we stayed before the British came in and pushed pushed us out of the area so that they would leave the animals alone. But they never realized that uh, in time of memorial, we used to live with animals together. And now because of that, I think it brought in a lot of injustices among and, and uh, people were discouraged and they started thinking that wildlife was now a government property. So because of that, it moved me, and uh, it encouraged me to to work with these two wildlife biologists to develop a community development program. And um, over the years, I think, uh, I'm now uh, close to 50, 52 years old. So I've spent almost all my life in this part of the region, which is
1: Zambia. Yeah. So um, tell us how you work, how the Foundation for Wildlife and Habitat Conservation works. I mean, I have, uh, I have read about it, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the mission says uh, change adverse living conditions in rural areas of Zambia through sustainable utilization of natural resources, improved access to education, rural health, uh, enhanced community capacity to initiate community-based programs. Uh, The objectives include increased household food and seed production, help develop businesses that provide goods and services, increase household income, and increase the ability of... Uh, your organization and its community groups to manage natural resources, and to give poachers an option uh, that gives them a sustainable and legal uh, way to make a living. And by the way, before you answer that, just to give people a sense of the reach of your work, uh, here's a quote from Michael Wine in The New York Times. 13 years of work by Mr. Simwinga have turned around the lives of 2,000 families Touched perhaps thirty-five thousand people. He has helped hold poaching in North Luangwa Park once rampant to a near standstill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Mark Owen says, in short, Hammer Simwinga is a modern-day hero, not only to us but also to his own people, and he deserves all the support um, we can generate. Um, and um, as I mentioned, you you won the 2007. Uh, Goldman Environmental Prize, which, as I mentioned, is um, really one of the highest awards in the field for your work. So, you you truly are um, one of these human beings who chose to make a difference. Well, I think uh, it's likely I've been overpraised <laughs> by by
2: people who write so well. But uh, I think I take it all to to the people, my people who have been quite supportive. I think uh, even all these awards, I think to me, I pay back to, to the community and just thank uh, the people who have been so willing to, to understand and also follow. Without the people, I think uh, we would have achieved what uh, we have achieved. So I have taken people as the central uh, um, uh, central domain for whatever I do. And uh, that's why when we started this program, we, we made sure that we, we addressed uh, the actual needs of the people themselves. Right. And uh, uh, as you know, our major economy was uh, working for poachers and also being paid small lumps of meats, and that was not really helping us. So we tried to look at alternative livelihoods, like improving the local economies of the people. through simple uh, agriculture activities. Uh, we started looking at which sustainable way can we produce food for, for ourselves. So we started working on uh, uh, simple programs like uh, how do we improve the soils? How do we improve uh, water resources? So we started working uh, with programs like composting, and also started looking at other small businesses around the community, like sunflower production. Because we knew that once communities were empowered with the uh, money, once economies uh, communities were also empowered by food security, then poaching and also aiding uh, foreign poachers would come into the community and lure us into taking them into hotspots of breeding areas where animals were breeding, then that would help uh, uh, stop even the rate at which uh, poaching was going on. So I think, it, yes, uh, the communities uh, accepted the project because uh, we used basically resources which were within our means. Uh, we didn't look for external inputs because we knew that external inputs wouldn't really sustain us for, for, for long. So we highly depended on how best we would use our environment, our resources. But we had to look at a much more sustainable way and how best we could extract resources from from the environment without really degrading it. So that's why we devised uh, uh, approaches which uh, were more environmental friendly. We looked at uh, how best can we grow our crops using crop rotation. How best can we improve our farming system by uh, introducing our indigenous way of farming, which is like uh, uh, crop mixing whereby in one small unit area you put different types of crops so that they benefit from each other. And from these simple techniques, we saw uh, an increase in crop yields. We also started seeing the local economy improving, and um, it became more and more attractive for a lot of households, uh, starting now uh, looking at poaching as one, a very dangerous uh, way of uh, sustaining their homes because it was also quite dangerous to go into the park because of law enforcement, and also because of it was also seemingly very dangerous to go into the terrain. It would take uh, our people three to four days just to work for less than uh, a dollar to these commercial poachers. So it was not only creating problems to, 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 to our economy, but it was also creating a lot of injustices among us, our family members, because uh, at times they could be arrested and pushed into jail, while commercial farmers, uh, poachers, would go scot-free. So they used the different methods to, to enslave us into doing something which was not really paying off. So with this project, with started empowering ourselves, and slowly we, our economies started improving. Then apart from that, we also devised uh, uh, a program on how best we could take care of our lives, because in that area we never had any health center or facility. So through the support of uh, the project which was being run by Mark and Lydia Owen, they supported establish a rural health uh, program, training rural women as birth attendants, because uh, mortality rate for young people, for children and um, pregnant mothers was really high because we didn't have any uh, health facility within the, within the area. So I think those are some of the things which... Uh, I think led to other people coming in and uh, uh, supporting us. Like uh, at one time, National Geographic came in and documented what we were doing. And that became, I think, the pathway for me to be recognized as one of the many people in Africa who are trying to do all they can within their means to improve their livelihoods.
1: So in addition to Mm -hmm sustainable agriculture, in addition to sustainable healthcare, in addition to small businesses that you've mentioned. You've also started schools, right? Yes, in fact,
2: um, part of my price money was to pay back to the community. Yeah. Uh, I identified the places which had never seen a school. Yeah. So I put up a school in one community so that children those who, who were literally staying at home without entering into a classroom could have an opportunity. So with the press money, I managed to put up two, two schools. And now these schools have been taken up by the government because they've seen that uh, it is great and they've been motivated. And this has also opened up uh, more, more opportunities for the community because now some of the children who who went in these schools have gone up into their learning and uh, have even gone to other places. And this has kind of started opening up uh, the community. So these schools, to, to me, have really added value to,
1: to my community.
3: Yeah.
1: So, first of all, the work is extraordinary. Yeah. And, um, and I'm so grateful to know about it, and it is so hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's just start with what's happening with climate. Uh, What is happening to climate in northern Zambia, and is that having any effect both on livelihoods and on elephants and wildlife? Uh, Climate change and um,
2: climate-related issues, I think they are quite significant in our our community. I think of late... Though we are not able to, to describe or define climate the way it was being defined in, uh, in the climate summit in, in California, where they were putting a lot of figures and uh, a lot of diagrams, which is great. But I think uh, to us the way we've been looking at it, it's the impact on our, on, our, on our lives. And also I think it has also taken a toll on our uh, political, political realm. Um First of all, we have started the seeing uh, our food security being threatened because most of the seed types, which have been introduced in our community, are not really uh, giving us the results which uh, can assure us of sustainability. For example, we've had a lot of uh, inflow and uh, overflow of uh, uh, hybrid seeds mm. which um, are developed in line with the number of rain days. So we have several varieties. Some take, need longer uh, rain for days or more rain for days, others shorter rain for days. All these are varieties which are in the communities. But now, because of climate change, it is becoming extremely difficult for us to really plan which seed to plant. Mm -hmm. At times, you would take a variety which requires more rain days, but when you plant that seed, instead of it receiving the number of days it requires to mature, you find that because of variation in weather, you receive less lands. So there's loss of seed, and also crops are not giving us the yields which we anticipate in a a unit area. So those are some of the things which have brought climate change a reality to us, because the the food quantities which we used to have are no longer there, We also have started uh, noticing strange pests and crop diseases, which we never experienced in our communities. And now this has had uh, also a big impact and effect on uh, our our research uh, teams, who are finding it very difficult to come up with uh, uh, an emergence or a rapid solution to, to that. So it's like a climate change is always um, ahead of, of us and we are kind of trailing behind and thus has put us in quite a vulnerable uh, uh, situation. And then in terms of wildlife, it has also affected uh, the rangeland. land. Uh, most of the water ponds, which were dotted within the forest rangeland, are becoming more and more scarce. Yeah. And animals are now moving further away, following one major river, which is the North Ranguaneh, uh River. And uh, the concentration of animals in these areas is kind of also bringing in a lot of diseases because animals are converging almost in one... Grazing area, and that has also affected wildlife uh, at large. So, climate change hasn't yet has not only affected human beings, but it is affecting the whole eco 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 ecosystem. Because we are also seeing certain plant species which used to to be there dying out completely. So, this has become uh, a big a big concern. But also. That has not only affected the ecosystem, but the climate change, I think it has also affected the uh, decision-making for our civic leaders. They are not able to make decisions which are in line with the aspiration of the people. Uh, one is that um, our nations are increasingly going into debt trap by um, other nations, uh, like from Asia, I I think uh, China has come in a lot, giving a lot of money uh, to our countries. And when a situation arises to make a decision, it becomes very difficult because of uh, the the debt, the debt trap in which we are. So at times it becomes very difficult for our leaders to make A decision which would really benefit everyone because of when they look behind their back, they they see this debt trap which is on uh, on our side. So, climate change, I think, it has to be tackled on all. It is about you know, it's a multi. I don't know how to describe it, but it has to be approached in all angles, both on political level. Uh, civic level and also on a uh, traditional level, even on an individual level. And that's why us as indigenous people, we have taken climate change as a, a very, very serious issue because it has a, a direct impact on our livelihoods. It has also a direct impact on, our, on our, our culture and tradition because we have a strong attachment to, to nature and uh, without nature without the environment uh, our our life would, would be terminated so we would still call climate change as a big threat to our 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 survival mm. yeah
1: so when you started this work, you described how a population of elephants that had been around a hundred thousand mm-hmm. traditionally mm-hmm. was down to
2: how about uh, yeah down about to less than three thousand three thousand yeah.
1: So what has happened since you started this work? It, in some of the things I read, that poaching had come to a virtual standstill. Mm-hmm. Is that still the case? Is poaching still at a standstill? And what has happened? To the elephants? Uh, the elephants have
2: marvelously uh, uh, increased in number. Wonderful. And uh, the challenge now is the, how to increase the, the range land for, right. for the elephants. And um, uh, lucky enough, would say we still have more land, which is uh, under the traditional management. And uh, our project now. Uh, has extended the land range by creating what we are calling a nature conservancy. So we have uh, secured about 5,000 hectares of land. I don't know in acres now. This was initially just an open land. So with the project and the community, we, we have asked the support of the chief and the government to create a, a nature conservancy. And this is where we are. And we hope that this nature conservancy will create um, uh, more room for, for these elephants, which are populating. Though we know that uh, the population also is, of human beings is also increasing. So we are trying to find a balance on how best we can create more space for animals, and also how best we can create more space for people. Because these mm-hmm. two are always growing more like a in tandem. I mean, you can't look at uh, wildlife alone, but also you have to look at uh, what human beings would would want. So we're trying to find a much more balanced way on how to to make sure that uh, every living, uh, uh, I mean, all wildlife, both humans and animals find space in this world because we all need each other. So, with the increasing of the, 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 the elephants, of course, yes, we're having challenges because I think, there, sh- there be, at one time, there will be a, a human-animal conflict. But we want people to understand that uh, wildlife also needs space in this world, just as good as human beings need space. So it's a matter of finding a balance on how best do we balance uh, these two, two factors so that uh, there's no one one or the other which is being displaced. So that's mm-hmm. how we, we're trying to to look at the, the increasing number of elephants, is to look at which other uh, range is free, how do we convert it? And this has really excited other chiefdoms uh, who have come to us and ask if we can extend the same model of uh, converting the seemingly wasted land keep it safe and see if animals can go there. So it's quite exciting to us because it has also attracted other chiefdoms in the peripheral to look at our model and, and uh, adopt it. So this nature conservance is not only going to serve as a wildlife habitat, but we are trying also to create a, a, an education center where uh, indigenous knowledge can be passed on because, uh, uh, we have started seeing that some of the indigenous knowledge is, is passing away or is going away with the, gen, the generation gap. So we want the elders who have kept this uh, information to bring it out and have it maybe stored where it can be kept for, for the future. So this Nature Conservance will serve as a training center. It will also serve as a, a cultural center. And it has also started attracting uh, young people, students, both locally and internationally to come and learn on the approaches we are doing. So we are quite excited because it is one, I think it's uh, the only one of its kind with such an approach where we are saying it should be an open-air school where Anyone can come and learn. And uh, we are trying to also see how it can incorporate every person, educated and uneducated, so that we try to bring the culture and the indigenous knowledge and the scientific knowledge together and see how best the two can work for the betterment of the environment. Because I think we've we we noticed that there has been a big gap between the indigenous knowledge and the the modern knowledge, because it's like the two have been working quite separately, but trying to to achieve one thing. But this center will try to bring the two together. And uh, a few months ago, we we had the privilege that uh, the government of Zambia, one of the leading institutions, Zambia Forest College, has entered into an MOU with our organization so that each year... A Memorandum of Understanding. Yeah, so that Mm -hmm. each year they would bring in their students Mm. into this community, Mm -hmm. so that they can uh, learn also from the indigenous people and then come up with uh, a teaching curriculum, which can be uh, given out to everyone so that everyone is able to understand uh, conservation in much more vernacular approach,
0: yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Hammer Simwinga and host Michael Lerner.
1: So before we begin, I mentioned to you that when I do these conversations, mm. I always try to start with the person's work, Yeah. but what interests me most deeply in many ways is what I call their spiritual biography. Okay. How they come to be who they are. Mm. So I know that you were born November 17, 1964, Mm. in Isoka. is that Mm. how you say it? You're right. In northern province of Mm. Zambia, Mm. the oldest in a family of six. Mm. You were married to Queen Kasonde. is Mm. that how she said it? Queen Yeah, Yeah. She's she's late, she passed on four years. Chilufya. Yeah, yeah, Chilufya, yeah. Chilufya. And you have four children and also have raised two HIV orphans. Mm. Your father was a medical practitioner at Christian Rural Clinic Ministries, and you were named for Dag Hammarskjöld, the great first Secretary General of the UN, mm. Mm. who died in an airplane crash near your village, uh, uh, which was near the time of your birth. Mm. That's very interesting, isn't it?
2: Well, somehow I think he, uh, Dag Hammarskjöld did, uh, I thank my father for having named me after him because uh, he was on a a, a great peace mission mm-hmm. because uh, there were some wars and in, uh, in Congo mm-hmm. and uh, he was assigned by the UN to go and uh, uh arbitrate these warring functions so that the peace could be there. Unfortunately, uh, he was his plane was shot and uh, and he died and. Uh, mm-hmm. To me, I think I'm quite honoured to be named after after him, mm-hmm. though it's a, a Swedish name, but uh, I love it. And Because of the name, in most cases, uh, whenever they have one, uh, an event, the Swedish embassy, they always invite me. Not that I've done something great, it's just because of the name. <laughs> so <laughs> so I love to keep it
1: forever. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what is your first memory? Oh, uh, what? I have so many memories. So your first memory in your life, yeah. the first one, the first thing that you consciously remember. Um, I think uh,
2: the first memory is when uh, when I opened the school in the village, and the children came around and started singing. And uh, singing, singing. I think we sang, we sang until uh, I think I wept because to them, a school was something which they never dreamt of. Mm-hmm. And uh, up to today, uh, when I go into that village, uh, uh, it's like a, it's. A, I can't just imagine the 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 respect, the love. Uh, How the elders uh, at times, uh, which is uh, not African, but they knew before me, but uh,
1: I just, uh, just cry Mm. because, uh, yeah. So that's a beautiful answer, and Mm -hmm. I I love that. I didn't make myself clear enough. Mm -hmm. What I was asking you was, when you were a very little child. what is the first memory in your life? So for example, for me, yeah. uh, I think my earliest memory uh, might be um, of, was well, not absolutely the first, but Mm-mm. one of my early memories is I must have been about six and I was asking my mother whether Santa Claus existed or not. Mm. Ah. And she was holding me. I was sitting in her lap in my father's study. And she's ever so gently explained to me that Santa Claus wasn't real. Yeah. And so that's one of my earliest memories. So the question oh, I was uh, asking you, yeah. the, actually I'm yeah. glad the, the way you understood yeah. it yeah. because you yeah. told yeah. us yeah. this yeah. beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah. But can, what are some of the earliest memories you have in your childhood? Yeah, the, uh, the earliest memories my child was,
2: uh, I think we were seated in uh, an open kitchen You know, in Africa, you all sit outside Mm. and uh, as the sun goes down, the moon comes out. I think my grandmother was there and then, uh, I think he was telling us about one story, how a naughty boy turned into uh, a wild beast. Mm -hmm. and uh, (laughs) Because uh, that naughty boy, could not uh, uh, go to, to the river and, and fetch water. So when this boy was forced to go to, to fetch water, he went the other way. He didn't go to fetch water. Mm-hmm. And there in the forest, he met uh, someone and this same person gave him some food and he ate that food, and that's how he did. He disappeared from the the community. So that's the story which he always made me shiver and also get get afraid of. You no. Know? To, to always pay attention to what the elders are saying. <laughs> or else you turn into something, something else. That's the thing which has always been uh, in me. And I've told this story to my children, so that they also have to, <laughs> to know that whatever an elder tells you, you have to obey and follow it, because those are your, your teachers. Oh, well. so they, no, no, they, they, they They would really shape your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah so it's very important to listen to the elders because they've lived before you they have the experience they know and uh, I mean and in uh, the, the biggest the 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 biggest the they say the, the, the one of the most important african is saying that uh, it says uh, I'll say it in my language umuo uh, wa bamukutwi who can guess that it says life is in your ears yeah yeah Mm-hmm. What enters in you is what makes you a person. What you hear. So if you don't pay attention, then you're bound to lose your way or you're bound to die. So that has been my guiding, guiding uh, principle. Listen, listen, listen. That's why even this time, what climate is is telling us, we shouldn't just use our eyes, but we should pay Let's hear what he's saying, he's saying: we, "We're having floods, we're having fires. But if we concentrate too much on just seeing, we may miss the, the point. Let's listen, because climate is talking, but we are doing more of seeing, but not doing more of hearing. because uh, nature at times may be violent and There are times when it becomes hostile. It becomes really hostile, mm. so let's pay attention, so that's how thank you yeah,
1: yeah who who was the greatest inspiration for you in your childhood what person
2: uh, um so my, my my grandmother your grandmother, my grandmother mm-hmm. yeah, she used to take us early out into the field, do the work, and uh, every time when we were hungry, we never realized that she had some food in her basket
3: mm.
2: should when we were least expecting to eat anything or nothing, we would see her pulling out a banana and then give us. And uh, every time when she picked her basket going to the field, there was no need of her telling us to, to follow her. We would all just uh, rush, knowing that by the end of the day, we'll have something from our great-great-grandmother.
1: Was was there a lot of hunger in your village or not? oh apparently i think during our time i would not notice in my childhood because
2: grandmother would always keep a small calabash with some food every time but i don't know if that food was enough for everyone but i think it was it was enough for us
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah and if your grandmother had described you to us when you were a little mm-hmm. boy suppose mm-hmm. we were asking your grandmother yeah. what you were like when you were 6 years old what would she have said about you? I, I think she would have said, Hama is one of my favorite uh <laughs> <laughs> But why would she have said she, you were one of her favorites? I would she? always
2: listen every time, be close to her, always find out if she needed some help of any kind. Yeah, you were there. I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So your father was a, a, a medical practitioner in Christian Rural Clinics. Mm-hmm. Was he a Christian himself?
2: Yeah, he was. He worked with the uh, the um, that was a, the Presbyterian uh, um, Church. Mm-hmm. It was a Scottish uh, mm. the Scottish missionaries. Mm-hmm. These were the first missionaries who came. I think they were in the line of David Livingstone. So I think uh, that's the the main church line which Dad worked. He was among the first people who was ten, trained in uh, in medicine by the missionaries, and that gave us also the opportunity to spend most of our childhood moving from one village to the other.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, so he was uh, an important person in in these villages. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yes, he, he was, and I think by the time he was getting retirement, he he was the Secretary uh, General for for one of the one of the biggest uh, churches in in Zambia. So he had to to manage all the health institutions at the level of administration.
1: Yeah. So you were the oldest son of this very important person in mm-hmm. the church and in the medical mm-hmm. clinics and so mm-hmm. forth. Mm-hmm. So when you were um, uh, when you were an adolescent, mm. uh, um, you know, when you were a young man beginning mm. to come into yeah. uh, manhood, mm. what were you like then? Well, um,
2: I, I think uh, I liked playing football. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes. And
1: uh, you mean what we call soccer? Yeah,
2: soccer here. Yeah, right. uh, okay. yeah what yeah. you call soccer. Yeah. I think uh, I loved soccer. I loved the gardening. I think I did a lot of. Um, uh, work within the, within the home.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I would collect different flowers from different places. And then I would, I would really make sure that uh, our house was the most beautiful house within the surrounding. Mm-hmm. And uh, dad liked that every time he'd come from work, he would spend a few few minutes just walking through the garden. I think I, I loved gardening. Uh-huh. And um, I didn't know the idea where came from I used to go and collect uh, a lot of uh, leaves grass then pu- put in our in our garden I, I just enjoyed that art I didn't know that maybe in future that would also be part of my yes. line of career yes. so I loved the flowers I liked working in the garden and um a, a, a little bit of going into into the wilderness I would take my young sister. Uh, we have fortunate by that time. I think we had a small shotgun, so I would, we'd go do a bit of hunting. Though I never killed any, any animal.
1: Yeah. What would you hunt? Uh,
2: we were looking for small rabbits with my sister, and
1: some. How would some, you how how would you kill or capture the rabbit? No,
2: no, no. I never killed one. Unfortunately, mm. it's like uh, the. Uh, I was bad at aiming, so, <laughs> so so my sister was always laughing at me that uh-huh. you never cure anything, let's just get back. So that's how we spend most of our, mm-hmm. our childhood, yeah.
1: yeah. So was your father, I mean, I know he was yeah. in the church, Yeah. but was he personally a religious man? Yeah, he, he, he was, okay. he, he, he was. And what there. about your mother, what was she like?
2: Uh, my mother was very tough. Uh, Very tough. I I, I think I, I won't love to mention how we nicknamed her. Um, it might offend a few people here, I don't know. No, no, but no, sure, no. you have to talk. Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, mother was um was a tough woman mm-hmm. and dad was always afraid of him. <laughs> and uh apparently she comes from a, a, a clan. The, 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 because in Africa, we are classified according to clans. Me, I think I come from, a, a which clan is that? I forgot it. But my mom comes from the the, the lion clan, mm-hmm. which means tough people. Yeah. You don't mess around Interline. with the, Yeah, yeah, you yeah. don't mess with the lions. So, um, she was so tough, so much that we could, uh, when she's uh, away, we could, just be ready to receive and make
1: sure that everything was done well in the home. Your your father actually was afraid of your mother. Oh yeah, yeah. in most cases. <laughs> so yeah. here he was, this big figure in the church, he was this medical yeah, practitioner, yeah, yeah, yeah. but your mother was a well, force. Well, yeah.
2: and, and times, uh, uh, dad would do come to us to, to, to get support. If something went wrong, so dad would come Trust me and my other young brother and say, can we combine forces here? So that's- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then mom would say, Okay, I've seen that it's like now an army is being built against me. <laughs> then that way that's how we'd manage to, to 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 defeat mom in most occasions, is to, to team up. Mm-hmm. And uh, get things done on our favor. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Still, she could remain tough. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so as you came into your own yeah. as a young man, yeah. um, where did you stand among the other people of your age in the village? Were mm-hmm. you a leader, or were you uh, kind of quiet? Sort of. How were you in relationship to your peers in the village? Mm, how I say. Uh, Basically it's like uh,
2: um, in my peers, I think everyone looked at me as a unifier mm. Mm. of different functions I mean as we were growing p- different people, different age groups, gender issues came in so it's like uh, they looked at me as a a, a center of reconciliation Oh, how beautiful. both even at uh, at college uh because I did my school um uh, in the southern part of the country, Mm -hmm. which uh, uh, had a different understanding and perspective of the people from the north, Mm -hmm. because I would speak their language uh, in the south. So whenever we had uh, more like a south-north conflict, and because I was playing soccer, and uh, all the two sides, considered me as a, a great soccer player. And they didn't want to kind of uh, uh, make me sad or side one, one group. They would always want to let me speak on behalf of everyone. And I would stand in between the two groups. And finally, we would get along. So I, I was more like a unifier in terms of conflict resolution and uh, uh, where things, some people are unable to get along, I think I would go there and then just bring the two groups. I think that is my, I would say that has been my strength in trying to make sure that we all live in harmony and understand each other, yeah.
1: So what was the evolution of your religious identity, if any, in other words, when you were young, Mm. your father was in the church, was Mm. your mother a religious woman? We
2: are, she was, but, times, her action, would you would doubt whether she was really. really <laughs> 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 yeah, she would, be. but she was very good. She was very good, and uh, she would encourage us to go to church. And uh, of course, if you don't go to church, should yeah yeah. But
1: otherwise, <laughs> apart from that, she was a great woman. So, what was your own personal experience of God? Uh, my personal experience of God, basically, I was
2: raised up uh, in a. A high religious church, uh, family, we all went to church. I was raised through, through Sunday school. And um, I think that has always been me. And uh, I'm a Christian by, uh, by religion. I profess Christian strongly. Uh, I, strong, I believe in his strong values of uh, loving your neighbor, just as you love yourself. I think those are my guiding principles. And that's and, the teaching what, of the Bible.
1: What was the evolution of your understanding of what it meant to be a Christian? In other words, as a child, you mm. had one understanding. Mm. How did your understanding of the Christ evolve in the course of your life? Uh, maybe that question, uh, maybe... Say it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Maybe in a simpler So, mm. Jesus yeah. or the Christ, Mm. mean different things to different people. People, And so when somebody is young, they Mm. may have one understanding Mm. of Mm. Jesus Mm. or one understanding of the Christ. Mm. But in the course of a lifetime, Mm. that understanding of what the Christ means May change. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious not that it has changed whether in the course of your lifetime You had an experience of the evolution Mm -hmm. of the meaning of the Christ for you
2: Uh, I I think it hasn't really changed as much. I think uh, um, Christianity in my life has think it has has been embedded in me so much that I still consider uh, the brotherhood are the most uh, strongest thing. Though other people understand it in different different. Re- I think with me, I've combined it with the uh, my own cultural understanding, and uh, growing in a Christian family has just helped me to understand uh, the different religions, how they operate. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, what I can say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you pray? Yes, I do pray. Mm-hmm. I do pray. What do you pray for? Uh, God to take care of me, to Mm. keep me, Mm. and also pray for the peace of the world, Mm -hmm. yes. Mm.
1: And in the area of Zambia where you work, Mm. what are the religious groups there?
2: Uh, There are several, I think. We have... um, 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 What can I say? We have several. Okay. Yeah,
1: we have Muslims, we have Hindus, mm-hmm. uh, Buddhists, really? Christians. Yeah, yeah. Really, so yeah. that means there are different ethnic groups yeah, as well yeah, as... Yeah, yeah, So it's not all Africans at all. No, no, no. Because I had an image of uh, the area where you lived as a, a quite remote area where, um, in fact, it is quite remote, but... Um, one of the most biodiverse and intact wildernesses left in Africa, some of the highest remaining concentrations of wildlife. And I thought that most of the people there were going to be African. But you're saying to me that there are Hindus, there are uh, Muslims. Uh, so I'm just trying to get yeah. a picture of what the cultural mix is in the villages where you work. Well, oh, yeah, maybe I didn't get I was thinking, maybe we were talking on the...
2: The whole country. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. But we, um, that is the picture of the whole country. The I think whole country. Uh, yeah. um, it's an open society. All regions are, are, are free to, to practice. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a freedom of worship. Whether you, you want to worship your ancestors is fine. But in our particular area, I think there, there are two. I think the major, major one is one. Others um, don't believe in anything. They're purely... Secular? Secular.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Others, they're highly attached to ancestral worship and the culture and the traditions. Others, of course, seek Christianity, which has coming. I think those are the major form of worship which are found within the, the area. And I think with the park, it has a history that uh, uh, this was our ancestors' center of worship, where the current North Rwangwa National Park is. And currently, um, the government gives us, um, our leaders and our elders, a passage into this park to go and perform the, uh, the culture, Culture ceremonies. I see. So, so this is the kind of uh, uh, arrangement which is now uh, uh, taking place in the in the in the in the area.
1: Yeah. So, in the area where your work is being done, is that population largely African? It's all Africa. It's all Africa. All Africa. Okay. okay. Though so- we have, um, I
2: think, about two white Zambians who are. Um, no, not really working in, within the same body. They are more like tour operators. They use this national park for to take in tourists. I see. So, but they've been there for many, many years. They become almost Zambian, mm-hmm. uh, white, white African Zambian.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about what the um, what is the cultural history of Zambia uh, in terms of um, uh, just how how much political discord there's been, how much harmony. In other words, different parts of Africa mm, are very different. Mm, mm. So, um, is uh, tell us a little bit about the the political and cultural history of Zambia. Uh,
2: we are quite fortunate. I think Zambia as a country has about um, seventy three languages,
3: mm.
2: and uh, it's one of the thinking. It's one of the countries' with diverse languages. Most diverse. Uh, yeah, uh, most diverse. But um, we are fortunate that uh, it is also one of the quietest and peaceful uh, country in the region, despite all these diverse languages, compared to other countries with two languages, but they fight and continue. And the, the whole thing, I think it is started with the wisdom of our... Uh, First great leaders, political leaders who have, who fought uh, for independence from the British. This was our first president, Dr. Kenneth Kaunda, who is I think 90 and something years. is a great statesman who managed to bring all the 73 languages together, and he used a simple way of doing it. I told you that I did my school in the southern part, though I'm from the northern. So whenever you went into grade 8, that is secondary school, he would transfer you from your region into the other region. So there was... um, Exchange. Exchange. And uh, that's how we started learning each other's uh, cultures and traditions. And that also gave me an opportunity also to learn their language. That's why even today, because of that, it has promoted a lot of intermarriages. So in tribal intermarriages, and it becomes so difficult for each one tribe to claim supremacy because of the intermarriage. And that kept us, it has kept us united as, as one people. Then also, there was um, uh, a philosophy which was highly publicized and preached in all schools, in all homes, which was saying one Zambia, one nation. All the 23 tribes should create one one nation. And that was the song. You enter grade one, you have to learn that. One Zambia, one nation. And you know, by that time, I think we are still under socialist Marxist rule in that period. I think what the government says, you have to follow. And then um, that helped us unite. And uh, then, I think later on, we went into, it was more like a one-party state. It was also, it meant a unifying factor because there was one voice speaking, bringing all the 73 tribes. Then later on, I think in 1973, a multi-party uh, uh, wind emerged, but it was uh, crushed until in 1991, when we had now through multi-party democracy sweeping throughout the country, and this is when we saw uh, multi-partism in our country, and that has brought in uh, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of movement, and people are able to 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 say whatever. And yesterday was it this morning? I just received uh, uh, something from one of the political leaders, uh, which. Maybe if we have a bit of time, I will let it play, so that you can just hear what is really happening in a, in a country also, which is democracy, but also at times when one particular power has overwhelming authority to do things. We, I just, I just mentioned of um, uh,
1: the. Look, can we turn that yeah. off? Because also, I think oh, it will sorry. actually be a okay. problem sorry. for us oh, okay. technically. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe you could. Tell uh, I'll, I'll tell you. Maybe after this, then you can yeah, just listen. Yeah, yeah. But sorry. can you just tell us in your words what this message from the leader was? What What did he say that uh, that struck you?
2: Uh, what struck me was uh, that we shouldn't sell our nation we should still maintain sovereignty of whatever we have. Let's not be dictated by an external person because of either because we have received something from him. Let's make a right decisions. This is a case where in our country they've, they've blocked a road and built a moor just by the end of that road. And now this political leader is saying, no, it's not right. This road has been in existence since independence. Why should we block it and inconvenience a lot of people just because of one investor mm. has come in and wants to put a mall? And then you just put it right up on the road which has been on the map from the time we got independence. Why this time? What's so was that? it a Chinese sponsored? Yeah, it is a Chinese mall. Yeah. And it was, that's how the situation is. So those are some of the things we are saying. At times when you you get in a, a debt trap, you may not have the power and the will to make a right decision when you are supposed to make yeah. a decision.
0: You're listening to a TNS conversation with Hammer Simwinga and host Michael Lerner.
1: And of course the debt trap has been something that the United States used with a lot of countries mm. um, before, and now China's using it. Mm. So these, it's a, it's an old neo-imperialist uh, yeah, trick, yeah. really, yeah. Uh, that the United States uh, used it. Um, mm. What's that book somebody else may know? The uh, Confessions of a...
3: Oh, uh, an economic hit,
1: man. hit man. Yeah, the, do you know this book? It's a no. book called The Confessions of an Economic Hitman. No, no, I to oh, it's, it's a book you would enjoy. Yeah. It's about, by an American mm. who was paid by the government mm. to go into countries around the world and promise them big dams and in infrastructure oh. and say it would pay mm. for itself. Mm. But the real purpose was to indebt these countries so that the United States and the corporations involved with it would be able to get people to do whatever they wanted to do. And so mm. that that's actually, yeah. I mean, some people question the absolute veracity, yeah. but I have talked to people in development work mm. who say whether or not that's precisely mm. the case in that book, that the story was basically true. And so now, yeah. It's in the newspapers yeah, yeah. that the Chinese are doing this all over their, you know, the Pacific yeah. and Africa yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and getting countries into the debt trap which you reference. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but so, why should it happen now? When, what? Why is it happening now? Because it's happening now because yeah. the United States has has pulled back a lot and mm. China is looking for uh, resources, oh, yeah. and with these huge financial yeah. surpluses, they need to invest the money somewhere. Mm. They're not going to keep investing it in U.S. bonds, well, okay. and so they're just buying up large swaths of resources in Latin America and Africa and uh, Asia, wherever they can buy them. Oh, well. Yeah. So that's what's happening.
2: Yeah, just going our political. Level. Apart from that, I think uh, the political situation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's okay, I think we we're practicing our our, our democracy mm-hmm. and uh, each year ever after five years there is um, a general election where everyone is free to mm-hmm. to aspire to whatever mm-hmm. position mm-hmm. one would want to
1: yeah I saw a beautiful photograph of you and your wife queen mm-hmm. and um with your uh, four children and two um, adopted children. How old are your children now? Uh, The the oldest now is
2: 21. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's uh, in the university
1: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, studying environmental science. Mm -hmm. The second one is a a girl. She's, um, I think, now 18. Mm -hmm. I keep forgetting the (laughs) years of my children. And uh, the third one, another girl, should be 15. Mm -hmm. And uh, the last one is a boy, Uh is 12. Wonderful.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, tell us a little about Queen. What, what is her story? Um, Queen, unfortunately, passed on three years ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah,
2: Passed yeah. on That, yeah. that wasn't
1: that. in the things that I read. So. Oh, yeah yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. passed on. And uh, ah. um, she was a great woman. Ah. She inspired me. Uh, she was a friend and a colleague. Mm. And uh, I think um, she was in charge of uh, the rural health program mm. in the communities mm. and also she was training women uh, in um, nutrition mm-hmm. uh, using local local foodstuffs within
1: mm.
2: and uh, mm. I think uh, she was my great partner
1: I'm so uh, sorry for uh, your loss yeah, th- yeah thank you yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, in a few moments, I'll open it up to questions from our, our colleagues here in the audience. But before I do, is there anything we haven't talked about that you would like to close this part of the conversation with? Anything you'd like to say? Yeah, I think we we haven't re- I, I mean, a few days
2: ago, I think California was overwhelmed with a lot of visitors coming from different nations mm-hmm. looking at climate change. Yes, and, uh, what is a the major so, climate yeah, change yeah, meeting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, maybe on that one, yeah. what, what is our stand? What is our role as the yeah. individuals? Because that was more like a, a big conference. Yeah, and uh, I don't know within the amongst us who had an opportunity to attend that one. If one has something which uh, we can say this is a, a, a take back home from this big conference, what is the what is the biggest thing which we can say? Okay, Hama, from this conference, you take this back home and let people go and say this is what we mm-hmm. we resolved. I think this is one of the biggest questions because I think we've had the, the Paris the That's Paris cool. Agreement, which was. Mm-hmm. Uh, done a few years ago. But uh, I think, uh, like in Africa, we haven't seen the impact of that conference. Are we going to see the same thing? So maybe that's one thing okay. we would have discussed. A and what, bit, but what what do you think that, what, what are you taking home? Oh, uh, Basically, it's very basic. Not much. I, I think all what I'll go and uh, what I'll take back home is that um, there is a kind of uh, um, support from all sectors. I think, uh, to me, I saw an opportunity for the indigenous people having been recognized and being given a window on which to to participate and be part of it and be given an ear by the corporate world and also by, I think, the, the political decision makers, policy makers, I think, uh, there was a resolve that they have to make sure that uh, this issue be uh, addressed in an uh, amount stakeholder kind of way. It shouldn't be left only for politicians to drive it, but each and every individual should take part in it. I think that's
1: really what to me came out very strongly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm glad that is the message that you heard, and I hope it is a way that more real resources can flow into your work Mm -hmm. and into countries and places like yours around the world. Mm -hmm. I mentioned to you um, what preoccupies me right now, which is, um, and I I say this... um, against the background of the Mm. fact that Mm. for 43 years I've been working at Commonweal, and Mm. we, as you know, work in health, education, environment, Mm. and justice, and uh, so we keep working on all the things we can work on just the way you do. But I have a concern that Mm. if we frame what's happening to the world just in terms of climate Mm. and poverty, Mm. which are the two principal things, and that's a good framing. But mm. what I think we're missing yeah. is the totality of the threat to humanity in the biosphere, yeah, exactly. which is far more mm. than climate and poverty. You know, So for example, um, uh, listeners can go to a website called mm. FAN Initiative, mm. FANinitiative.org. It's one of many websites, or a few good websites, but it lists 12 different factors, not mm. just climate exactly. and poverty, exactly. but acidification of mm. the oceans, mm. uh, loss of topsoil, yeah, exactly. You know, the financial structures teetering on the edge, of, You know, mm. more and more failed states, mm. uh, toxic chemicals. Exactly. You know, uh, uh, <inaudible> it, uh, There are just dozens, dozens of these factors. Exactly. Mm. And so I believe the truth to yeah. be mm. that it is not one or two factors, it's Mm. the interaction of all of these factors. And there is a serious group of scientists and policy theoreticians Mm. Mm. who believe that the potential for civilizational collapse Mm. or deep civilizational erosion with Mm -hmm. a series of future shocks Mm -hmm. means that Uh, we are headed into a very, very, very difficult period of time. Uh, For me, the political situation in the United States Mm. and elsewhere where you have, Mm. you know, uh, leaders who are not paying attention to the environment or to justice or anything else, these are simply symptoms. Uh, They're just symptoms of an enormously... And so I... Love the fact that the climate conference both recognizes mm. the importance of indigenous peoples mm. and talks about but, at least getting resources yeah. into these places mm. and giving people a voice, but that simplification mm. doesn't do justice to what we're really facing. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I mentioned before we started the program that, at least in the United States, that the um, the electrical grid is enormously vulnerable to uh, cyber attacks, and if uh, cyber attacks come, we actually know that the Russians have mined Mm -hmm. our Mm -hmm grid with mm. the ability to take it down we mm. probably mind theirs mm. but we're state actors so we could you know retaliate yes. but there will be non-state actors yeah. you know people with no country that you can retaliate against yeah. who have the technical capacity mm. whether north Koreans or te- quote terrorist mm. groups or whatever who have the capacity to take the grid down mm. well if the grid goes down in the united states mm. This whole computerized infrastructure Whoa, goes down yeah, with it. Mm. The financial system, mm. the social security, mm. the medical, everything, everything goes down. Yeah. Right. So, what is it going to look like day one after you know the grid goes down? You know, and yet we we go on as if that's not going to exactly. happen. But there are actually dozens of things mm. that could happen. It doesn't have to be the grid going yeah. down. It can be anything else. Is exactly. it So, what I said to you. Because I've invited you to be a thought partner in this area. The first question was, do you share the analysis that that all these interactive factors are important? And secondly, as you reflect on it from where you live in Africa, Mm -hmm. how do you hold that possibility? Do you think about it? How do you hold that Mm. as the future that we're walking into? Uh, exactly as you can see my
2: the the way the project has been designed mm-hmm. i think it has all been designed on the same principles you are telling me and uh, to me it falls exactly in the, in the common common way of thoughts and mm-hmm. mission because it's basically on how each and every factor is is related to one another we cannot single out one One item as the major cause of anything, or so to me, it's uh, approaching an issue in a much more holistic way, so that it is faced with equal attention. The way you do face one one angle, that's the attention you have also. The attention should give it to the so it should be a balanced approach, a much more holistic approach to whatever issue we are trying to deal with. It has to incorporate environmental justice, health, culture, no, science. Everything should work towards uh, uh, no maximizing uh, what is really. Uh, uh, I don't know, but it should be more of a holistic approach in, in simplicity. Yeah. We don't have to look it at one, one side. So to, to me, I think I completely uh, share the ideals and also the aspiration of this institution, what they're trying to do and what they're trying to achieve, and would be very happy to be, to be part of it and contribute in our own small way, even as far as we are, I think, For me, I feel my spirit, we are on the same line.
1: I'm deeply Uh, honored by that, Emmer. And Uh, what I want to add is mm. that paradoxically, Mm. if one of the things that happens Mm. is that the grid goes down Mm. or that there's a breakdown what some people call civilizational collapse, Mm. then you ask what are the groups who will have a potentials to survive? Mm. And there are scenarios in which indigenous communities Mm. that have been less linked in to these things may actually be in some ways at an advantage, that people who have learned Mm. how to feed themselves Mm -hmm. and so forth, that in a a very difficult period of time, Mm there may be ways in which um, that's a benefit, you know? And I know there are a lot of young people in Mm -hmm. this country uh, who are very actively involved in learning how to grow food, mm. how to you know recover old crafts, yeah, yeah, mm. and just you know learning how to live on much less because mm. they don't expect to get mm, as much money um, as they've yeah, managed mm, it. Mm, mm. So there's a kind of a vision of some young people mm. which I deeply embrace yeah. that um, we may need some of these ancient skills that yeah, you are yeah. you know yeah. you are working on. I
2: completely agree yeah. with you. Uh, uh, I think it. Two two months ago, I had an opportunity uh, where young people, young people, universities, people invited me to what they were calling a conservation fair, where we were trying to motivate, encouraging our people to be on the front line. So I'm also seeing a great hope if we can also reinvest in, in the young people who share the same vision so that we, we raise a, a, a cadre of uh, young people who can push this with the energy it requires at the moment. I think oh, what we need now is uh, the young ones to push it forward, Absolutely. to move forward, to move forward, encourage them, so that they also increase in the numbers, so that they also become uh, in position of influence. I think the other thing that uh, we need to support them also on how best they can move on, on the ladder in position of influence because also if they they don't have that opportunity, other people continue deciding for, for, for their, them. For their, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. I'd like to open it up to some questions. Um, yes, in the back here, please.
2: Hi,
3: my name is Chibi Sok. Um, I wanted to just ask you to maybe talk um, a little bit about the communities uh, that are engaged in the conservancy, the indigenous uh, communities, the local communities, the women, the elders, the youth, Mm. um, what role do they play uh, in the development of this conservancy and anything else that you can share?
2: Well, the the conservancy has become um, a unifying factor for the communities around the area. This same conservancy has seen the birth of uh, incredible initiatives which apparently were hidden inside individuals. So like the Nature Conservancy has come up with the groups which are highly interested in things like beekeeping, a thing which we never realized that uh, skill was within the communities. But when this Nature Conservancy came up, when, during our meetings, we could see young men, young women say, wow, I know beekeeping. I think I would start keeping bees in this Nature Conservancy. Then later on, we saw another group coming up. So, oh, we know herbal medicine. Then a group came up. So at the end, this nature conservancy kind of revolved in a way by it produced about eight working groups. Those who were more interested in sustainable agriculture. Those who were interested in weaving and crafts. Those who were interested in... um, Uh, domestic um, architecture where they can use the materials from the forest to improve on their housings and other things. Then we had groups who were so much interested in water and soil conservation. So these are self-managing groups who have found the will and the zeal to start working without being pushed by anyone. Mm What has motivated them is the creation of this nature conservance, which has become like a a home where they can operate and express themselves freely, without restriction. And uh, that, I think, has really excited me and has created a feeling that it will be self-managed and uh, people will express themselves in a much more deeper way than anyone coming from outside and tell them, no, don't do this or do this. So that's how this conservancy has, have, has an effect on the day-to-day lives of the people. And I think even from the time it was uh, thought about or designed, it had an inclusion of everyone in terms of designing on how this nature conservance they would want it to, to operate. So we had the presentation from the youths, women, the elders. We also included um, uh, other external stakeholders like the government workers and also individuals from the civil society so that we could design a model which was all-inclusive. So I think that's how
3: mm. yeah
2: it, it works. I don't know if you.
1: That was a great question. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Yes.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: So, I mean, that fascinated me, what you just said about the Conservancy mm. bringing forth all yeah. these groups. Yeah. How much are the local youth um, connected to the Internet? How much is their in information coming from...
2: Um, this is an area which is, has no connection to Internet. I think... Uh, those are some of the biggest challenges which we are still having in that part of the world is that one transport is a challenge communication is also a challenge if you don't travel and move it means the communication there's a high level of communication breakdown i think even my partners outside my work area have been finding it a very big challenge to get even updates.
1: Is there no cell coverage?
2: Yeah, uh, there's no. So you have to travel a long distance to get the the cell coverage for, for communication. So how do you work? Mm-hmm. Uh, I I do walk into the nearest town. That's why i just have access to internet. I think uh, could be maybe two twice twice in a week. Mm-hmm. I have to power up my work because how, also how far do you have to go? It's about uh, thirty thirty two k's, thirty two kilometers. So it also be a bit expensive because you also have to pay for those services. Mm-hmm. But even then, they are not really very uh, efficient in terms of you know mm-hmm. find that there's a breakdown. The system doesn't really favor you, so you may end up even spending extra few days
1: just to make sure that you communicate with friends. Yeah, and how? How much of your time do you spend in the region where you're working, uh, at the center of it, and how much do you spend traveling or outside of it?
2: Uh, I spend, I think, about seventy-five percent of my time. I'm I'm in the village. Okay. And about twenty-five it is done just for my administration and also some meetings just within. But about seventy-five percent. I spend it with the community and also working around the,
1: the yeah. yeah. Yes, in the back. Yeah.
3: Thank you for being here. Thank I'm you. Ramona. Thank and um, I'm just curious about the poaching situation. I came in a little bit late, oh, okay. so I may have missed some, yeah. some of that, but I did hear you say that at one time there were 100,000 elephants yeah. mm, in mm, Zambia, yeah. or are you talking about just your region, and that now there are 3,000, or and that the numbers have increased? And is that due to poaching or is that agricultural conflict between mm-hmm. people, humans yeah. and, and elephants? Mm-hmm. And what role with China's ban has decreased the elephant poaching in your area?
2: Yeah, yeah just to, to mention, North Wonga was one of the, previously was one of the highly densely populated uh, national park in the entire region. and. Uh, it had over 100,000 elephants before 1986. But after 1986, that's when commercial poaching came into. And that's when we started seeing those killings through commercial poaching, because these were highly commercialized poaching. International poachers would come in and hire the villagers and help kill these, uh, these animals. However, at the moment, at as per now, poaching has decreased. Though it hasn't decreased completely, we can still have pockets here and there. But uh, in terms of statistics, I think uh, it has uh, significantly increased because we've started seeing elephants' uh, uh, populations or signs of elephants' movements in places where they never used to, to go. Because these are very sensitive animals. Uh where there's high poaching, they also tend to hide. But when you start seeing elephants coming into villages, then you know that they've started feeling a little bit safer. And also we start seeing that uh, the numbers have increased because now they are extending their, their feeding, feeding range. So to answer that question in short, I think the, the, the poaching has, has decreased significantly because the communities have taken up the role of uh, protecting and also the government is through the Department of Wildlife Services, it has also increased the, the, the monitoring of these of these areas. Yes. Yeah.
3: Michael mentioned Mark Dowie coming at the end of October mm-hmm. and I'm not familiar with Haida Gwaii yet, but his A previous book was Conservation Refugees where he reminded us all that Mm. these wonderful, beautiful national parks that we love in the United States Mm. had people who were living there Mm. before. Mm. And he said, this is our chance to do it differently as South America and Africa start Mm. making their own national parks. Mm. And I'm understanding that this conservancy area is around the national park you were talking about. And I'd like to hear more about... Um, that how, yeah. the, the connection between them because yeah. he, he really mm. showed us how this is important, how yeah. the people who were living there mm. need to stay a part of not be thrown be out thrown of out. a yeah. new national yeah.
2: park. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think the most interesting part of the whole work we are doing that um, we have a national park here yeah. where we are driven out into this upland here. But even then, the national park was just designated as an area for ease management, but historically, all this was uh, a rangeland for, for animals. Ah. And now that this is a national park, what the, the system is like, when you have a national park here, the government creates what they call a buffer zone, which is a game management area surrounding the park. Here, they can allow people to settle and do their cultivation. But uh, it has also its own implications and problems. Because it's too close to the national park, animals come here, ready their crops. So there's that animal wildlife conflict which you have to, to manage again. But the goodness with this project is that we have an area which does not fall under a game management area, but it completely falls under Traditional land tenure system, ah. where the chief has an express authority to to manage it with his subjects. So this is the land,
3: so
2: which the, the us, which we have identified, which means we have now increased the range area for for wildlife. Thank
3: you.
2: But the management of this area will be now be done by the communities themselves. Mm-hmm. So this model has attracted other chiefs, they would want this model. So which means if we have enough resources, it would mean we'll connect these other chiefdoms so that now we'll be able to even connect the historical corridor area. Because this one was an animal corridor area before people were displaced. Down here, we have a very beautiful wetland called the Bangweulu Wetland. And the, previously, animals would do use this corridor as a, a migratory route into the into the wetland feed and then get back. Now, because of the disturbance of the of the area and the place, animals are no longer moving. But hoping that uh, we have more chiefs getting and preserving this, then we will rebuild back this corridor as for the animals. So this is what really getting us more and more excited of what we are doing. It's like the model is being admired and the other chiefs want to be part of it. And this is the bigger picture which we, we're looking for. If it works, then it will be very good. And then the whole area will be now called uh, more like uh, an indigenous conservation area. That's, the whole area will become more like a people's park. And may, a people's park, and maybe that idea of the way we, live, we used to live way back with animals, maybe this idea would help maybe achieve that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Other questions? Yeah. Yes. yes. So you're
3: looking at opening up that migration corridor
1: mm.
3: once again, which is now cut off by bringing in other chiefdoms that will come on board with this particular program that you're doing. Is that what I'm
2: hearing? Yeah, that would be really our our desire. That's the thing we'd want to see. Especially that the chiefs are now looking at it as another opportunity for them to create their own conservas. To them, they're just looking at it as a conservation area. But to me and the, the project staff, we're saying once that is done, then it will open up this odd old migratory uh, route, which uh, would be uh, a very good thing because it would have restored what has been lost uh, currently.
0: You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Hammer Simwinga and host Michael Lerner.
1: Yeah. Let me ask yeah. you a question yeah. about yeah. international NGOs mm. and their impact on your work. So mm. there are... We know there are things like the World Wildlife Fund, mm. like Nature Conservancy, mm. like Conservation International. Mm. There, are all these, uh, uh, there are all these big um, mm. NGOs, some of which work in Africa. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what has your experience been mm. with the positives and negatives, if any, mm. of um, the international NGOs? Have they been active around your projects? How mm. do you interact with them and so forth?
2: Um, some have done some great work, uh-huh. good job. Yeah. Some, uh, to Trust. my, not to, to, maybe let me put the situations like this. Uh, the way conservation is approached, especially in my country, that we have these big NGOs, which normally enter into agreement with the government. Mm-hmm. And, uh, now when the government comes in, it has a, its own priorities or preference of where they would want to take this project. Mm-hmm. And um, let's say, for example, WWF for the Wildlife Fund maybe only be interested in the area of the wetland. Right. to me, I'm not in the wetlands. Right. So, whatever resource and support it might want mm. to give, it may not be interested to support someone on the different equal right ecosystem Mm -hmm. that is one one issue then the other thing that um, these big NGOs they normally enter into government to government agreements whereby it becomes extremely difficult for an NGO like me to access some of their resources and expertise because it's really high up over there so that has been the, the, the biggest challenge Of course, we do benefit at times, maybe if they invite you maybe for a workshop, Mm -hmm. where maybe they're just looking for numbers and representations. So we do attend. But the actual hands-on, it becomes very, very difficult. And also they have got a a criteria on which they fund on. Either they'll come to you and they would want you to, to prove whether your budget has been over hundred dollars or thousand dollars, but if you are a very small NGO like mine, because I operate, I think less than thirty-five thousand dollars per year. That is On what?
1: thirty-five. On how much per year? Uh,
2: that that is per year. That that normally that is that could be my maximum. I just didn't hear it. My my budget is about uh, close to at thirty-five thousand. 5000 thousand. Thirty-five. 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 $35,000. $35,000. 35, yeah, that is, that, that is yeah. the year. But uh, NGOs will come and look at that, these big NGOs, and look at your budget and say, I think this is too small. Too we, small. we cannot risk our, our resources. Maybe the impact will not be felt. So they go more into looking at uh, what they, they equate the, the, the money they are putting in. And the, the impact because working with like an NGO small like mine they think, the impact of my organization will not be felt, at the, the global level. So automatically you are, you are kicked out. So that's how, that's how it works.
1: Well, again, mm-hmm. we find ourselves in deep resonance mm-hmm. because, the NGOs that we work with uh, are typically, grassroots NGOs mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, Often have difficulties yeah. with the big, big ones. Sometimes they do good work. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. sometimes actually they're very destructive. Yeah. Mm. there have been cases in which um, I know one case well in which one of the very large uh, NGOs went into Latin America and absolutely destroyed a whole network of local NGOs who've been working on the issues for years. It was, you know, so mm. there are many cases where there are negative impact can actually greatly outweigh their positive impact yeah. so the idea yeah. of putting resources into the hands of local NGOs mm. and uh, you know when I'm sure there were many others in the audience that mm. heard with a budget of thirty five thousand dollars you're accomplishing mm. all mm. of this mm. goodness gracious that's yeah. extraordinarily yeah. effective and I, yeah. I think um, you know you may well discover that mm. in your travels here mm. that there are others who um, share your goals and intentions. Yeah. No, no. But just a specific question mm-hmm. on that, mm-hmm. this new conservancy that you're yeah. trying to create, what level of resources do you need to make that happen?
2: Uh, on this one I think we need a little bit more. At I get a bit scared to, to mention, terms times may appear a little mm-hmm. bit, a bit ambitious, but I think basically... Well, just, just be ambitious. Yeah, yeah. yeah but basically, we need uh, resources to do a lot of uh, mm. community mobilization. Mm-hmm. I think our strength is in, you know, in human resource. Mm. Once we build a strong human resource, mm. then all these overhead costs will be just be taken on.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, I think uh, that's the most important thing is to build the capacity
1: mm-hmm.
2: of my organization because I I operate with a very lean, Stuff. Yeah, right. And these are purely volunteers, yeah. students, and um, they come when they are free. But when school opens, yeah. they leave, which means I do a lot of work as an individual, mm-hmm. and this becomes really a bit tough. So we would need money, basically, to to improve, to work on uh, on the staffing level, mm-hmm. so that uh, we 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 get more on the ground, mm-hmm. so that we have. People who can do outreach programs. Then uh, we also need uh, transport because I don't have uh, yeah. uh, transport. The last uh, transport, I think, which I was given by um, a, a good former supporter of mine, the Prince Bernhard of mm-hmm. Holland, mm-hmm. when I won the prize, he's the one who donated uh, uh, via second hand vehicle. Mm-hmm. which is which is almost 20 years old now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think w- you, you saw it when you came down to yes. it, so it, it, it goes on breaking. So, however, all what we need are, are our resources just to, to put some gear so that we are able to, to move and also implement because in most cases, when we give our target uh, period, we tend to, to lag behind because we are confronted with a lot of challenges in terms of transport in terms of also communication i just mentioned of the 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 communication system becomes extremely difficult to update even my partners like uh, uh, take who who are my great supporters who who are here in us at times takes months for for them to hear from me so those are some of the areas but basically If we can operate on a a close budget of about uh, 200, 250, it will see us accelerate this job Mm -hmm. uh, quickly and maybe uh, reach within our targeted period. Because things are changing fast. And if we delay any longer, even the land we are talking about might be taken. uh, Because we are having a lot of investors coming in. Uh, They want land. And uh, we, in fact, the Conservatives has a history. It was almost taken up by commercial agriculture uh, investment. So we had just to buy it because the government had taken it away from the chief mm. and converted it into a state land. Mm. So which meant people in Lusaka and elsewhere started Demarcating the land and cutting it as a commercial, a commercial farm. So this is our fear. If we delay any longer, even this land which we're talking of being a corridor, will be taken and will not have an opportunity mm-hmm. of preserving this important mm-hmm. ecosystem. Yeah.
1: Hammer, we're coming to the end of our conversation. Oh, I want yeah. to. Uh, Uh, ask you again, Mm -hmm. just as we come to an end, Mm -hmm. is there anything else you'd like us to know about your work, anything you want to close with about... I mean, I've been Mm -hmm. so moved, both Mm -hmm. by who you are and this extraordinary uh, piece of work that you've done Mm -hmm. through your Foundation for Wildlife and Habitat Conservation, and your effort to create the Mukungule Community Nature Conservancy, Zambia's first community-initiated and operated nature conservancy. Um, you, as I mentioned, won the Goldman Environment Award for Africa. Mm. Um, you, have, you are saving uh, a, a, an extraordinarily important elephant uh, uh, population uh, from poaching and completely changing the whole structure of the economy, of of how that part of Zambia works, so we are in your debt for your work and for coming to be with us. I just want to ask if you have any last words you'd like people to remember about what you're doing and uh, how they can be in touch with you, what the website is and (laughs) so forth.
2: Thank you. Uh, Basically, we would want to invite as many people as possible to be friends of North Ruangwa and also to be friends of the foundation. I think we have a wonderful partner here in, in the US who have really supported us. It's a very small institution, but with their mega resources, they've helped us hold on to what we think is our last hope. So we are appealing to whoever would want to support us to See, Tikiwa, I think they are the best communication. They know where to find me. At times, it's difficult for if I gave you my email, you'd think I don't exist. But I think they've got enough patience to wait for me until when I appear. Then they say, Oh, here's Hammer. So I would want just to thank you all for coming and just uh, letting me share what we're doing. Please, you are most welcome to Africa. Visit us and see what we're doing. It's uh, an open-heart uh, safari <laughs> concept trip, so you are most welcome. Please be be reminded that even as you are seated here, there is a lot which is happening in terms of uh, land grabbing, not by indigenous people, but but external people who are just interested in the extraction of resources. And um, this is one of the most important ecological zones for the whole area. You might also be interested to know that uh, this project is being implemented along the very important uh, uh, ecological zone, which runs from, from, from Kenya down to the, to the Cape, the Great Escarpment, the, the Great Lift Valley. So we are a connection to a a long, long stretch ecosystem. Because whatever will happen here in Zambia will affect what is happening on the source and also to affect what is happening down. So we really value your support and also looking forward that we work together. You can support us financially. You can, in fact, more important, you can support us uh, uh, materially and also human resource. If you have people who can come and volunteer because we are in the process of developing the Nature conservas not only as a, a tourist destination for both local and international but we also want to create it as a, an important uh, training centre. Similar principles like this centre where we'll be bringing children, we'll be bringing in adults, all levels of uh, age groups. We want this one to be... A, a replica of the good things we are doing here. So we don't know how this, thing, uh, this idea came about, but when we were talking, I just said, wow, how does this, I mean, things are just like uh, m- 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 matching up to, m- to my dream. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I uh, thank you very much for, for having
1: come and just
2: listen to what, to what I, I've been talking about.
1: Hammer, Samwinga, the founder of the Foundation for Wildlife and Habitat Conservation in northern Zambia. Thank you for being with us at the New School. It be my pleasure. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Hammer Simwinga and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.